Hi there, sweet dog. Stephen here. We've got a special episode to go with our Ark in Space podcast this time. It includes interviews with a whole bunch of amazing people that we've been lucky enough to talk to around the Ark in Space, but also the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era in general. So a big thank you goes to Liz Miles and Paul Cornell from the Hammer Horror podcast, Nathan Bottomley from Flight Through Entirety, Jeremy Raddick, Doctor Who Royalty, Ben and David from the Metabelius 2 podcast, Chris Burgess from Radio Free Skyro and Kat Griffiths from Verity, Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who The Writer's Room, now Outer Limits, as well as The Real McCoy, and Dave Kitchen from The Doctor Who Show. So on behalf of Dan, Cole and myself, we hope you enjoy. Well, here I am at Gallifrey One with Paul Cornell and Liz Miles. Welcome to Hammer House of Podcasts. No, I don't even do that on our own podcast. Hello. Stop stealing my lines. <laughs> I guess I've asked you here really because um, I'm really fascinated. We did Seeds of Doom with you, Paul, uh, and we did uh, Genesis of the Daleks with you, Liz. Both obviously Philip Hinchcliffe stories. Um, and I guess during that time, we kind of touched just briefly, I guess, on some of the issues of representation and also just in terms of the Hinchcliffe era as a whole. Um, we're doing the arc in space, I guess, as an illustrative example of maybe um, that entire era, and it certainly kicks it off, introduces a whole number of tropes and themes and whatever else that is common, I guess, to the Hinchcliffe era. Um, but I guess I just wanted to get your views on on not just Ark in Space, but generally actually the Hinchcliffe era as a whole and, and your thoughts. And I know that there's there's both uh, good points and not so good points that we can talk about, and I'd be fascinated to hear it. Um, yeah, the Hinchcliffe era. Um, I really like it when fans refer to it as the golden age of Doctor Who, <laughs> crying out loud. It's not that good. It's fine. There's a lot of nice stuff in it, but it's not magically better than so many other eras of Doctor Who just because you grew up with it. Um, and I absolutely, I particularly love the absence of women in a lot of the stories. Um, I love the random uh, Orientalism, to put it, you know, in a less uh, dubious thing. Love Pyramids of Mars. That's got no racist stereotypes in it that no one ever talks about. Big fan of Talons, which is racist. Um, even though I quite like the giant rat. Took me three tries to get through Talons. I fell asleep. I was so bored. I don't even get it in a sort of the sense of this is an amazing story. It's like, really? No. Hmm. No. Wasn't actually good stuff. Oh, I love season 12, though. Season 12 is absolutely brilliant. That's that's one of my favourite series of Doctor Who. Um, I just think it goes a little bit downhill after get rid of Harry Sullivan. But see, see, season 12, I feel, is a very underrated part of the Hinchcliffe era. And it's the later ones that, for some reason, I can't understand to get all the kudos. But uh, even Revenge of the Cybermen is still entertaining. And it looks kind of pretty. There are real caves in it. Lovely. Paul, what, what about you? How do you feel about the Hinchcliffe era? And uh, maybe let's start with Ark in Space and work our way um, through. Well, um, I now feel like the act that's come on after. Because, <laughs> um, honestly, uh, Liz just said uh, a lot of stuff I really, really agree with. Um, <laughs> she's in the same room, so that's, uh, I believe it's a contractual requirement on my part. Um, I... Um, the 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 darkness annoys me. The, basically, we have a, a counterexample right beside it, in that Graham Williams comes along, and um, 
he he it's almost like he doesn't deliberately put lots more women in Doctor Who. It's just that he doesn't think about it, and so lots more lots more women automatically show up. Um, it's um, and the fact that that you know the Hinchcliffe Holmes team are uh, they haven't a thought in their heads about whether or not they're going to put women in stories. They just automatically tell the s- stories without any women in them, which is in some ways worse. Um, the, um, I mean, honestly, the all-male society of Gallifrey would have been a really interesting way to go as that show got older. I mean, I think, you know, the, the modern, modern Doctor Who could do the all-male Gallifrey really well. I think that would just be... <laughs> it would be a very gay planet, would Gallifrey. <laughs> yeah, and the Doctor would say something like, well, you see, that's why I always pick female companions, because... You're completely new to me. I didn't have any of you around when I was growing up. It was all men. (laughs) (laughs) So when Rodan appears in the Invasion of Time, it's kind of like, oh, oh, there are women on Gallifrey. (laughs) You're a fascinatingly original headcanon. I can feel if you disagree with what we're seeing here, I imagine the Brain of Morbius is kind of counterexample. Um, unfortunately, uh, when they're trying to have them as kind of equals of the Time Lords there, the Sisterhood of Cowern, you've got the demigod-like Time Lords at that point and the Sisterhood of Cowern who don't clean up, their, clean out their chimney <laughs> and need the Doctor to do that for them. Um, I think the, the Sisterhood in retrospect look, work far better and it's one of my favourite Hinchcliffe-era stories um, after Deadly Assassin because the Time Lords are shown as bleeding incompetent as well and even better when we get to the Moffat era and it's just like, ooh, nice politics we're building you know that that the little uh, doodah where the time lords get their ultimate warrior and it's the master and he runs away and the sisterhood builds their warrior with regeneration and they stop the time war which i, I think is a really nice contrast thing there but yes i am aware that there are women in the brain of morbius it's nice there's one story <laughs> actually i think you're fine <laughs> But um, though it's the gothic thing, kind of get I get bored of as well. I mean, there is a change in emphasis. Season twelve, they're thinking about classic science fiction, um, and season thirteen and fourteen, they get more and more about um, pul- pulpy adventure um, and um, gothic types, and um, the classic science fiction bit was I. Kind of Boucher gets drawn in by that. Boucher, the heir apparent, the one who really should have been the next script editor. And because uh, we have a, an un, unbroken chain there from Turrence bringing in Holmes, Holmes bringing on Boucher, and it gets broken by Blake Seven. But um, where Boucher goes off to do that instead. Um, oh, Boucher. I thought you were saying Belcher. Who's Belcher? I don't know. That's why I was sort of confused. I heard Belcher. Well, of course, Belcher is somebody who's working. <laughs> the way he, you know, just shows up, <laughs> takes a long breath, and lets out an enormous belch <laughs> in episode three of every single <laughs> Hinchcliffe story. Where would we be without Belcher? <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is this is pretty negative. I mean, I I like I like I like Sarah Jane Smith a lot in Hinchcliffe. I think. Um, uh, she's kind of half formed in the Pertwee season, and she really gets her full fault, especially Liz Sladen, with somebody like Tom Baker at her side who's immensely friendly and supportive to her. Indeed, it's not 
supportive one way around. Tom Baker goes to her straight away and says, help me. <laughs> and that's the best decision Tom Baker ever made, to, to, to see that Liz Sladen was great and say, I'll, I'll, I'll pace myself around you, I will follow you. And um, the, um, the way that they develop a partnership, and it's unfortunately at the, part, at the expense of Ian Barter, who's really good, but those two are working so hard on being a double act. Oh, no, no, the trio was perfect in season 12. I don't, I don't feel that at all. I feel they work together so well that they have those relationships, they balance each other out. And, you know, you get them, you get so much good stuff with the Doctor and, and um, Harry and Sarah and Harry. You, you have such a good sense of what the relationships are. And then you've got those, all those marvellous scenes in Genesis of the Daleks where it's the Doctor and Harry working together. And they do it so perfectly. One of my favourite bits there is where the Doctor's like scoofing, scoofing, scooting over the table saying, oh, so you'll just take these bits. Then he hits the gun out of the dude's hand and Harry immediately catches it. And it's just like, oh, perfect. You, you're, on a, you're on the same wavelength. You get this. You've escaped enough times together. You know what's on. So, no, I think, I'm, yes, I really like Sarah Jane. I really enjoy Sarah Jane. But I enjoy her so much more with Harry there as well. And, um, yeah. It can get some of the stuff like the Android Invasion. I rewatched fairly recently, and it's quite intense the relationship between the Doctor and Sarah. And I don't remember it quite like that. He sounds very distressed when she's in trouble, but um, it's just not as interesting to me as as when we've got Harry. Um, it's I don't know. I feel bad saying that. I know Sarah Jane is lovely and beloved and great, and I do adore her. But she reaches her height for me in the Sarah Jane Adventures. <laughs> and I'm just, yeah, I know. It's not like I don't enjoy those stories. Now I feel like I'm being harsh. I love season 12. It's brilliant. I, I, I love Seeds of Doom. Yeah, that's great too. Uh, that, that's actually close to perfect for me. Uh, there's um, such an amazing shape to that. <laughs> I have to use the word shape when she's, <laughs> she's on the same podcast. Um, it, it, it really um, builds and builds, and it's a terrific piece of professional work. Um, and um, it, 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 there's this awkward relationship with UNIT, because it all comes down to contracts, TV in the end, and the fact that um, Nicholas Courtney refuses to hang around waiting for them to call him up for individual stories means that they get more and more distance from UNIT because they just can't yeah. make it work. And um, the Android Invasion is really weird in its treatment of the regulars. I mean, I started watching at that point. I, I somehow, this is a mystery. I somehow, I, start, I started watching Brain of Morbius, and yet I somehow also saw the Android Invasion. Um, Andrew Pixley thinks there might have been, while I was on holiday in Wales, a repeat that didn't show up in the Radio Times. Um, because otherwise it's impossible for me to have seen the android invasion at the time. But anyway, so but I saw it without knowing who any of these people were. And so it was like, oh, you seem to be doing some bizarre emphases on these characters. Oh, they're gone again. I have no idea. <laughs> and the fact that they offhandedly kill Benton. And the, and the last the last we ever see of Harry in the show is him, is him still being tied up. <laughs> I mean, he's okay, but it's a really weird way to treat people who were regulars a little while ago. I, lo I, love, I love the fact that John Levine makes his, his, his eyelids flutter to indicate Benton isn't dead. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the smallest possible gesture to still being a regular in a TV show. Not dead! Hello! <laughs> we, are, we are Hammer House of Podcasts. Well, 
perhaps now only I am a mouse of podcast, <laughs> which um, we, we watch, uh, me and Liz watch um, the Hammer Horror movies in UK release order and talk about one every uh, month. And our patrons get an entire extra podcast a month where we talk about an Amicus Portmanteau movie. Also, I've written for Big Finish the first Twelfth Doctor Adventure, Astrea Conspiracy. I don't know when this is going out, but it's released on the 28th of February. Yay. And um, it's uh, a delightful tale of the Twelfth Doctor in Afrobane, um, who was a, a British spy. And um, it's read by Neve McIntosh. Liz Miles, Paul Cornell, thank you so very much. Hello, sweet dorks. It's me and Dan here, sitting Hi. with the effervescent national treasure... Nathan Bottomley of Flight Through Entirety. Nathan, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, very well. It's delightful to have you. We're really excited to have you in here. Oh, yeah. no, I'm really it's... happy to be here. <laughs> so we're talking about the Hinchcliffe era. I'm just going to start off and say, is it tiresome? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like I, I wouldn't get paid for this segment, obviously, if I didn't not. agree with that. Um, it is tiresome. Um, but it is an incredible era of the program, yeah. I think. And there's very good reasons why a lot of people look back on it as the program's high point. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure that it is, but I do think there's a kind of consistent level of quality. There's a, yeah, there's a consistency about the whole era. I would use consistency, sure. definitely. And, and it's Tom being sort of really really good i mean mm. there's a few different versions of tom mm. isn't there but sure. but the version in the hinchcliffe era is incredibly good that mm. he's mm. super alien yeah. And, yeah and super angry yeah he's, and he's really on and it's like it's almost like he's got something to prove yeah like this, start, this sort of start phase where he's really trying to put his stamp on it on that character like you said he's so alien yeah mm. and you, i think you really see it here in mm. in arc in space don't you oh definitely oh yeah and we've talked about it before on terror of the zygons as well he's just got this grin that is uh, it's not human yeah he it's, grins yeah. yeah he grins and he laughs when it's when things when people should be terrified and or crying he's uh, he's grinning which is like it's, it's one of his things he even does it in logopolis with uh with um, Tegan, oh. you know, when he's telling her that her aunt's dead. Yeah. And he just sort of does that. He also does it when he dies. <laughs> so, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, great yeah. acting. But you're right, there's a real consistent kind of theme that goes yeah. throughout the whole era. The, a feel, you know, like a sort of feel of dread. And I think, I mean, the obvious flaws are there are virtually no women in it. Yeah. And... That's that Hinchcliffe Holmes. That's that Holmes thing coming in. You think that's Hinchcliffe as well? Well, I think so. <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the things that disappointed me most about Hinchcliffe, you know, Hinchcliffe writes the Seeds of Doom novelization. Yes, and he basically cuts most of Amelia Ducar <gasps> out of it. You mean um, the, that delightful lady who just yeah, like, yeah. that scene that's kind of meaningless where she just has that guy around for but remember but that it's she, so great she comes into the house later and talks to Sarah and talks to Harrison Chase and all of that stuff is cut <gasps> and all of her sort of fabulous banter with yeah. Sir Colin and things in his office afterwards and. It's it's kind of like Hinchcliffe doesn't have time for that sort of fun stuff, you know. It's too busy, sort of getting so, being serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's it. And and this season kind of watched 
you know, in one go. Like if you watch all of um, series 12, mm. it is like it's incredible. It's, you know, incredibly high quality. It's a massive jump in quality from what we've had. It's much darker. It's much more adult and it's sort of much more more interesting. But it is kind of a bit too horrible, I think, for mm. for sort of Saturday afternoon you know tea time viewing for kids too many nasty things happening to people, characters we love kind of yeah thing. yeah yeah the, uh, you remember when they come back to the beacon you know to the ark when it's nerva beacon is that in, a revenge yeah 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 um and they all just have to walk through a corridor that's got like dozens and dozens of dead bodies <laughs> in it yeah. and you kind of think how is this fun you know why does she agree to go why does sarah agree i was going to say echoes of sayward right there yeah. <laughs> uh, just yeah wading through the dead you guys have said this on ft a few times you're like why does sarah jane keep coming back when so many horrible things happen to her during the hinchcliffe yeah era? yeah yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she gets um she gets trapped in a in a conduit. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's I mean that's an incredible moment and I think a lot of people really remember the moment where mm. where you know Pertwee would never have done that. No. He would never have done that. He would have said something super bland and super patronizing. He's probably also he was probably skinny enough to get through that corridor himself. He could have done it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He was He's all got narrow, bones. Narrow enough hips to get through yeah, it. So. Exactly. I'll do it, Sarah Jane. <laughs> those sailors' hips. But that thing where he's like super horrible mm. to her and does, mm. uh, you know, like, like really kind of negs her in order yes. to sort of, you know, get her to go through. Mm. Um, and the only thing I think that rescues it is the fact that she sort of smacks him about yeah. Yeah. when he tries to get her but out. It still wasn't good enough, was it really? <laughs> she gives him that sort of almost, she almost hits it, but not quite. She yeah. forgives him immediately. It's kind of like, well, you really let him get away. <laughs> maybe, there's a, maybe there's a moment later where she pulls him up in the TARDIS when they're, when they're underway. Probably not, though. Yeah, don't do that again. <laughs> is it worth talking about Bob Holmes? Well, I, mean, I he, think so. He's a big part of the Hinchcliffe era, right? I think Absolutely. he's... I mean, he's a huge, huge element of mm. it. And, and, you know, like I think Hinchcliffe has a sort of creative vision for the show, mm. but Holmes is one of the best people to ever write for Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. He's really good at bringing like an idea and a, and a world to, yeah. the screen, to the screen, to the small screen. People always talk about how he's really good at world building with a few with a few sentences here and there. Well, I mean, you certainly see that in Ark in Space. Mm. You know, Ark in Space is set in a few sets on a space station you know there's no locations there's no kind of real larger world but he manages to create that and it's a world that you know there's a lot of 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 class in the world Mm. you know like different social classes um Mm. it's not you know like a futuristic world where all of that stuff's been ironed out Mm. um there's you got your prime units, you got your med techs, yeah. you got your super engineers, and then you got your Rogans. Your yeah, yeah. Lyset, like Rogan in particular, but yeah. both Lyset and Rogan seem to be sort of a different class from yeah. Vira and and Noah. And they've all been paired off. Yeah, they're all been paired off for well breeding, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a, it is a it is a kind of super weirdly different world from mm. the one that that we live in now, but it still has these sort of really relatable elements of, mm. of class mm. and hierarchy and sort of outcasts and, 
Vira talks about regressives, I think, mm, yeah, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is a there is a bigger world there and it's created sort of really deftly and I think that's one of the things that he does. You think that carries out to the rest of the kind of the Hinchcliffe era as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think that he's he's very good like you know, he's smart. One of the things that he does too is use just incredible vocabulary. <laughs> like there are words that occur in the Holmes era that have never occurred in Doctor Who sort of, you know, before or since. And it's it's super enjoyable to listen to someone who is just so good at language mm. um, and sort of so efficient at it. I love that, for that, that high minister speech that comes over the... Uh the, oh my uh, god! Yeah. Loudspeaker in arc. It's just so wordy. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, it's great. But it's just like delivered really beautifully. And, and it's, it's another woman. It is our, <laughs> another our third woman of the episode. Hinchcliffe uh, Holmes. <laughs> I think the other thing is an obsession with sort of time and history. Like mm. all of the historicals have a lot of super interesting and sort of well informed historical detail in them. Mm. But remember that the. Uh, that the attack of the Wirren is the result of something that's happened in human history in the past, mm. that the, the Wirren are uh, a threat that has been defeated by humanity in the past and is now back for revenge. And that's a huge theme of the Hinchcliffe era, that, that it's all sort of long-dead villains who are sort of back to get you. Back from the distant past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's true, that's mm. true. Well, that's like Sutek and... Well, Eldred. Eldred, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, what about the... Um, the Zygons. Time, the Frankenstein timeline. Yeah, Morbius. Yeah, Morbius. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the final story, Talons of Wang Chiang, has a villain from the future just to shake things up a bit. You know, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talons of Wang Chiang. Yeah. So that's, that's the last one, right? That's the last hint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, you know, like it's sort of massively accomplished and incredible. I mean, you know, like a really, really great story. Mm. But uh, sadly, yeah. nearly mm. unwatchable. Pretty, <laughs> pretty strongly overshadowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, the seventies. Man, Tom looked great in that Sherlock Holmes outfit, though. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, he went on to play Sherlock Holmes. Have you ever seen this? I don't no, think I know. I know. No, I would have heard something about. Yeah, this. yeah. It's him and Caroline John, and um, it's the Hound of the Baskervilles, and oh Tom my is, goodness. is Sherlock Holmes, and Caroline John is. Um, sort of Dear the Lord. sort of main female character, the one who I uh, need to find this. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's really something. Oh, wow, this whole Ark in Space Hinchcliffe uh, thing for me and you, Cole, has just been an exercise in thing in realizing things we haven't seen, isn't it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Gonna go home and turn on get the uh, get the eBay ordering cranking. Here we go. So, uh, final thoughts, Hinchcliffe era. Oh, I think tiresome. it's <laughs> <laughs> tiresome. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. That's yeah. why I'm here. <laughs> we only brought you here to say that word. No, please continue. Um, I think it's rightly remembered as as one of the great high points yes. of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad that Doctor Who can be more that than meant. the Hinchcliffe era is. Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, I think that's pretty. That's pretty great. Thanks so much for sitting down with us, Nathan. Oh no, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, do we do something really dumb like uh, now? It's back to Steve at Gallifrey One. <laughs> Hello, sweet dogs. Stephen here at Gallifrey One. With me, I have Doctor Who royalty. Jerry Raddick here, long-time listener uh, and sweet dork, um, so kind enough to uh, to give us a bit of his time here at Gallifrey One. Um, 
I'm going to hand it over now to Jeremy. And Jeremy, tell us what you think about not just the Ark in Space, which is the story that we'll be doing this episode, but also the Hinchcliffe era in general. Well, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's nice to be here. Um, I love Ark in Space. It's a hard story to not love. It's, it's kind of a perfectly contained adventure. Uh, it's a great jumping on point. You really don't need to know much of anything about the show. Um, I think it's Roger Murray Leach did the design. Gorgeous. I mean, it's so clean and all those whites and the space corridor. I mean, all that stuff looks great. Um, I th- and I think also as well, it's a good uh, it's a good example of how. I mean, for anybody that's interested in how the show was made, it's a really interesting example of how something from the page to the screen can change and grow based on the many hands that get involved. That's the thing that I always like about it. You know, like uh, John Lucarotti was the guy who was hired to write it, which is a crazy thing to do. Like, here's this guy who wrote historicals for Doctor Who 10 years earlier, who, like, works off a boat in Majorca somewhere. And some, you know, he's such a mysterious figure, John Lucarotti. He's named it after all the episode titles because he thinks it still has episode titles. He names it after, like, plant pods. Like, there's one called Puffball. Who would ever say, let's Doctor Who episode one, Puffball? That is not a title that anyone wants and so then he gives it to Robert Holmes who's like one of the great you know great writers in Doctor Who um, an amazing talent with a real vision and he turns that John Lucarotti story into this sort of gothic horror science fiction very creepy internalized tense you know story and it also a plus um, so as a story itself it's really exciting and wonderful to to watch it's i think it moves along at a great clip it's four episodes which is nice i think tom baker's stunning in it he's still very engaged and and hungry and it can't believe it's like he can't quite believe he's doing this part and so he's just nailing it and being really alien and and you've got liz sladen and harry martyr or ian martyr you know playing sarah and harry and there's a really not a tighter team they're really great um, the supporting casts are all great. Um, the speeches are great. It, it and it doesn't have some of the weaknesses that the Hinchcliffe era has as a whole. It's got a terrific part for a woman, which is something that the Hinchcliffe era hugely struggles with. You know, when you have you gone, I'm sure you're like like me as a Doctor Who fan. You go through and you do, uh, you know, per, sort of perennial watches. You know, so I'm gonna oh, I'm gonna sit down. I'm gonna watch all Tom Baker, and I usually find like. The Hinchcliffe years is a classic era. There's no doubt about it. I think Hinchcliffe really had a production value vision that he wanted to communicate. I think like a lot of great producers, he had a, an idea of what worked best for the show and he committed to it. And he luckily had a script editor who agreed with that, which is great. But I also think that some of the aspects of it, um, when you watch it all in a row, by the end of it, you're like, it's good that this. It's good that Graham Williams got told to do something different. You do get tired of it, and one of the things I really get tired of is a damn sausage fest for, for four years. Like they'll have like a really great female character pop in here and there, and you'll be like, oh wow, that this scene's really come alive all of a sudden. And then you know the next episode, it's Michael Sheard and five other, you know, dudes, English dudes, just you know. So there's, I think there's a way to. To think of it as a rosy situation, you know, you look at it through rose-colored glasses a little bit, 
and I'm thinking about like you and I before we started recording what we talked about how that era is moving away from it's kind of moving it's starting to feel closer to the eras that preceded it than the eras that came after it and I think that's one of the reasons why there are fans um, of my generation and older who for them that was the doctor who they watched as a kid so it's still very much alive but for other people who came to it after that era was long completed to them it's an historical artifact as much as the Troughton era and so they don't have that they don't fight so hard to be like oh no Talon, there's nothing wrong with Talons of Wang Chiang there's lots wrong with Talons of Wang Chiang um, you know I got into an argument on Facebook with somebody one time about that that serial and whether or not it's racist and I said yeah it's racist it's racist for no other reason than that it's source material which is Sax Romer's Fu Manchu novels are racist novels they're called yellow peril novels and they're based upon the idea that people from Asia are unknowable and dangerous and sinister and that's just racist do I think that Robert Holmes believed that you know, Asian people were evil? No, of course not. I think he was doing a pastiche, but that's where privilege comes into play, right? I think Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes, not as as bad people, just as the men they were and the time that they were, really didn't think about giving great parts to women, really didn't think about, you know, making sure that there were some Asian actors in the role instead of yellow face. They really did not think about it. And I think a lot of people get up in arms about opinions like that because they think, I'm running down this great era. No, the you, you can be honest about it. The era has triumphs. Many, 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 many wonderful triumphs. Um, it also has dangerous pitfalls in it. Much in the same way that John Pertwee's era does and Troughton's era does and certainly Hartnell's era does. And it does some of those things worse than the, those earlier eras, right? Um, and some of them much, much better. So I think you just got to be you got to be honest with the things you love. Having said all that, I still love Ark in Space. <laughs> it's still wonderful. It the bubble wrap is great. It's so it's such a great story. And I, I'm so glad you guys are doing it, because when you guys started doing the podcast, I was like, when are you going to do Ark in Space? It's kind of one of the perfect ones. So it's a good time. Good time to do it. Now I've babbled on too long. <laughs> Here you go. Thanks very much. Jeremy Reddy, Doctor Who Royalty. Thank you very much. I'm here with Ben and David at Gallifrey One from the Metabolies 2 podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Um, we're doing an, an episode on the Ark in Space and looking at uh, the Ark in Space in the context of the Hinchcliffe era, uh, an era that has many opinions. And uh, I know that both of you have a very high opinion of, of the Hinchcliffe era. So I'm just going to throw it to you and, and uh, let me know what you think, what your thoughts are about uh, Ark in Space, but also the Hinchcliffe era that surrounds it. Well, I'm very lucky. Um, the uh, One of the things about Who, I think one of the cliches about it in general, is that um, the first kind of, your first encounter with Who is the one that kind of sticks with you. Um, and I'm, I think I'm quite fortunate in that, well, actually, I started out in the Pertwee era, but the kind of sort of my golden era of watching Doctor Who was the Hinchcliffe era, which is why I think it's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, however, other than the fact that it's uh, the one that I first saw, um, it is also objectively good um, because it is better than all the others. <laughs> 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 Mainly because I think um, uh, you know there's a coherent there's a coherence to it. Um, there's a uh, a a desire not a desire. There was a kind of a, a structured run through a series of kind of standardized 
British storytelling tropes ideas. I don't really like. I never like the the word trope. It's kind of storytelling ideas. They kind of ran through all the all the Hammer horror movies and remade them as Who. Um, and they even actually with Ark in Space, they kind of an- anticipated. Um, a movie that was made in 1979, which, of course, they, they anticipated making Alien um, and kind of made it sort of backwards through time. Um, <clears throat> so that's, uh, you know, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's kind of structured. Um, you had, uh, like, great acting partnerships. Um, I think, you know, producer and... Uh, script editor partnerships you know there's a lot of chemistry I think between Holmes and Hinchcliffe like there was a lot of chemistry between uh, uh, Letts and um, uh, 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 Dix and um, yeah so those are those are some of my reasons I mean I think some of the some of the detractors of Ark in Space will reference the bubble wrap but of course you know uh, in the most recent series 11 of New Who we already we know that we know the evil the, the bubble wrap is intrinsically evil, um, and it will course as you mutate into a, into a wirren, um It's you know it's it's a it's a naturally evil material, uh, so not a problem there. And uh, those are my thoughts on the Arkham space. Currently, I'll now hand over to my colleague David. Thank you, Ben. Hi, uh, for the Arkham space, the the opening episode one is kind of a tour de force of uh, Tom Baker, Liz Sladen, and Ian Martyr. And I really enjoy when we just get the TARDIS team in isolation, (laughs) acting with themselves, acting against each other, and in the set, and telling a story. And I think it really lets the character shine. And it really sets up the whole dynamic of uh, season 12, after Robot, which is after coming after uh, uh, Dixon Let's set that up. Um, where you get a Bob Holmes authored script and you see the um, optimism of a young, or not a young, but a, a, new, a new script editor and you would compare it to what he writes after with uh, uh, the Sunmakers and you just see his, uh, you, you kind of see an arc of uh, disillusionment, uh, despair. We have this very optimistic speech, but, but going... Going back to that first first episode, I love it so much because it's just the three of the main cast, and it's it's like at the beginning of the Wheel in Space where we just have the Doctor and Jamie. I just really like it when we have the TARDIS team, the Time team, working together to solve a problem and then playing off of each other, and you get a lot of the characterizations of a brand new Time team going in, and the story in in the Hinchcliffe and Holm era is often to get the kids or the viewer to watch the next week and the it works really well with with uh, the ark in space with the cliffhangers with, with with noah looking at his hand and it it just it keeps you going and there's a whole there's there's a whole layer of a sacrifice that holmes worked into it with uh, i think it was rogan who punched out the doctor to disconnect the rocket so they have a sacrifice there but then with noah sacrificing himself and the weirens leading him off on the rocket so it, it, it there's a nice level levels of structure and layers there so it's 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 one of it's a it's a doctor who story of my favorite time team um, getting lots of room to act, and uh, it's just a lo- it's just a lovely classic story. 
And I'm, I'm going to interject there again. I'm going to add more thoughts that I was having while David was having his thoughts. There is a great, um, I don't know whether, you're, whether the listeners to this podcast are aware of the writer J.G. Ballard, who I'm a big fan of. Um, but there's an amazing Ballard story, which I'm, of course, not going to forget the name of. It's a short story about uh, people who explore a spaceship. Um, and they explore it, and the more they explore it, the bigger it gets. And then the bigger it gets, the more the, the more they explore it, and it gets well, it gets infinitely big, basically. And all they do is just continually explore an ever increasing area. Um, and that always kind of reminds me that first episode of Ark in Space, which is sort of pretty much in, uh, inconsequential. Uh, you know, they. Uh, Sarah Jane gets on a bed and gets zapped somewhere else and they get zapped by something coming from the ceiling and like nothing really happens apart from them kind of exploring a thing one of the uh, one Noesque in that way. Yeah, it's very yeah, it's, yes. There's, I mean, there's, 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 as I said, it's it's kind of almost completely in, in, inconsequential. I mean, it could have been, you know, a three-episode uh, 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 story. But um, uh, the uh, one of the things that always gets me about the Hinchcliffe era, and again, you know, this is because I was watching it when I was a certain age. A lot of it is about play, um, and you know, the kind of games I used to play with my sister, and the kind of games I used to play with my friends at school. You know, we would develop these kind of completely inconsequential sci-fi stories that would kind of involve us just exploring something and then a, an incident would occur that we would overcome and then another incident would occur that we would overcome and nothing would really happen um, and I think uh, and again that first episode is very much like that and I think you know the way the, the, the one of the things I love about the Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe era is it does kind of connect to kind of playing and the way that the doctor and his companions you know kind of nothing really bad ever happens to them it is a kind of a form of play which i always kind of enjoy so that's another thought there the other really the other really nice thing about uh, that era is we see uh sarah jane become friends with the doctor she was more adversarial with pertwee and her character arc is a softening and she becomes less less uh less challenging and more sympathetic i think to uh, the doctor and his travels and just you, you see like in pyramids of mars where she goes oh i know you're a time lord and that and it's you have this great sense of loss at the end of uh, or a hand of fear where the the that um, tom baker and elizabeth sladen scripted their own departure and it's it's bittersweet and it really sets up the character that russell t davis was able to bring back in the in the 2000s for this adventures of sarah jane so it's I really like that friendship of the the, the 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 fourth doctor and Sarah Jane. So you see that develop and be, that affection grow from you know, effectively robot, but from really arc in space through to her departure. So that's it's 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 a platonic love story that you can that stretched out across the Hinchcliffe home era. That's a lovely way of putting it. Um, I've just looked up looked up on the internet what the name of that J.G. Ballard short story is, because the internet's brilliant. It's called, actually, Report on an Identified Space Station. Lovely. Thank you very exactly, much. Exactly. Which is exactly what this, that Ark in Space is about. It's a report on an identified space. Well, I guess they do identify the space station in the end, yeah. and it's full of, like, killer insects from the dawn of time. But anyway... Yeah, so sorry. One just last thing is yeah. just that whole season 12 is its own mini arc with connected stories, which works really well if you look oh, at the yeah. very, very classic serial. Yeah. So even though that was um, partially, uh, it's a, well, actually, it's a lot of Dick's setting up what would be easy with uh, set reuse and 
Um, it, it's it's it really is at the time modern who but it was very reflective of what was going on in the 60s in both structure and organization with this one serial bleeding into each another and it 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 really keeps the viewer going because even at the end of when 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 Ark in Space ends you have Sarah and Harry joining the doctor going down to the Santaran experiment and Sarah in her in her in her uh, yellow rain gear and stuff so it 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 ties everything nicely together with continuity and there's there's built-in cliffhangers even when a story is concluding Jens thank you very much uh, where can our listeners our sweet dorks find out more about the Metabilis 2 podcast well, we are at Metabulus2, numeral2.com on the internet, and at Metabulus2 on Twitter, and on all good uh, podcast feeds. So, hope. We're also on Facebook as well. We've got, a, we've got like three friends. <laughs> so become our friends on Facebook, please. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Much appreciated. Well, hello, sweet dorks. With me on the line here, um, rather incredibly and very, very nicely of them, we got Kat from Verity and Chris from Radio Free Scaro. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having us. Indeed, thanks. So I've asked you on, um, and you've kindly said yes, to talk about the arc in space, um, but also as, as a vehicle, I guess, to examine the larger Hinchcliffe and Holmes era in which it sits and indeed which it starts. So um, initial thoughts, what do you think about the Ark in Space? Um, I'll be honest, I sat and reread the um, TARDIS wiki entry for Ark in Space not long uh, before yeah. I got on this call, um, just because it's a story that I should have seen a lot more than I actually have, and uh, it's not a very memorable one for me, so I guess that kind of says it all, that it's not very memorable. <laughs> Uh, as as one who has seen it probably more times than I can count or remember, um, <laughs> I, I consider it memorable. But it's also it's also ingrained into my DNA as a Doctor Who fan because when I when I started watching um, in the in the early eighties, um, this is going to sound horribly depressing, but I've been a Doctor Who fan longer than Cat's been alive. Um, it is depressing. You're right. <laughs> um, the the the, the, the stuff that I was watching at the time was chiefly Tom Baker because that's what was being sold to American American mm. PBS stations and being in Canada we we got our Doctor Who chiefly from American PBS stations and so um, sure. season season 12 was uh, one that was played quite a lot so between watching it as it went out on whatever station or watching the VHS tape I had or over the years um, you know DVD or now, the, uh, the season twelve Blu-ray. Um, I've, I've seen this seen this more times than I can think of. <laughs> yeah, I think we're the same. We were talking earlier with um, Dan and Cole, um, Chris, about exactly the same thing. How basically it was just stripped on Australian television, and we were kids in the late eighties when we were sort of uh, first starting to be drawn to this strange and eerie show that sort of later became a life obsession. And so, you know, the Hinchcliffe and Home Zero uh, is kind of like uh, mother's milk in some regards. Mm-hmm. But Kat, h- how is it that you didn't sort of come to, to see this too often in, in the time that you've been a fan? Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. It's Argon Space is kind of one of those stories that everybody around you says, you need to see it, you have to see it. You know, some <laughs> to the point of you're not a real fan unless you've seen it. 
Um, oh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. There's lots of people that would disagree with you, um, but I don't know. It's. I think part of it is just I don't like watching stories that everyone tells me I should watch. So that probably started it, mm-hmm. and then from there I kind of smartened up a little and realized I should at least see it. And it probably just never stuck in. Just wasn't my jam. Just wasn't my thing. Well, I, I seem to recall that. So. Um, 10, 11 years ago when Kat and I first started to get to know each other, she hadn't seen much Doctor Who. Like she, her, her gateway into Doctor Who was, was Torchwood, uh, by way of Queer as Folk. Um, and I, I seem to remember talking to her about Doctor Who stuff and one of the Canadian cable channels, BBC Kids, was about the only place to see Doctor Who yeah. that I think she was talking about at the time. And it was chiefly Davison stuff that they were showing. Yeah, and they would show it at like at um, five thirty or six a.m. Because my little brother, who is quite a bit younger than me, um, would wake up before I would, and then come and wake me up, and we would go and watch Doctor Who in the living room. And he would just sit down and watch the episode, and I would like, you know, get coffee and have breakfast and do everything else. That is so sweet. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess you know, using the Ark in space as a vehicle as we are to sort of examine the wider Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Maybe let's seg to, to that, you know, three years of Doctor Who. For some, a golden era, and for others, an era that maybe is, is much overlauded and much overhyped. Um, where do we stand on, on this, and, and maybe some of the reasons as to, as to why? Um, I'm going to start off with a, a minor tangent, if I may, insofar as... Um, so, obviously, <clears throat> Hinchcliffe and Holmes were this... This 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 gigantic pairing, this 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 lauded, uh, almost almost mm. elevated um, era of the show, but uh, a lot of people will forget that the Ark in Space wasn't written by Robert Holmes. It was initially written by John Lucarotti, who wrote the Aztecs, um, uh, and and was a was a a, a, a holdover, not a holdover, but they they just they they pulled him. Uh, Canadian as well, uh, but um, they pulled him from '60s Doctor Who to write mm. to write for Tom Baker, and uh, you know a decade later, uh, and he was he was uh, so goes the legend so out of touch with with Doctor Who and how it had developed since his last uh, since his last effort that he was still giving the episodes individual titles <laughs> rather than an overall one. So uh, it's. I love that story. It's. it's uh, <laughs> it, it always. It always uh, amazes me how people are, are always going to start with Holmes and Holmes and Hinchcliffe at Ark in Space. When uh, yes, Holmes wrote what we saw on the screen, but it did, just didn't start out mm. that way. And and uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 yeah. It's a it's a, a cool little cool little um, story about Luke Roddy's return. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And it's so odd to think that essentially the you know the first proper um, script after um, Terence Dix writes um, uh, Robot is given to someone who hasn't written for the show for a very very long yeah. time. It's weird, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. They they wanted him for whatever reason. I don't know if Hinchcliffe saw him as a you know um, because he was there in the past. He's worth getting again in the future. But I mean, how many how many other <laughs> how many other uh, first Doctor writers weren't? weren't hired where's where's william ems where's bill strutton where's uh, uh you know and so on we got terry nation but uh oh i feel like i really need to like brush up on my who wrote what and who directed what 
Because I'm like sitting here frantically without my phone for some stupid reason, frantically going through my head of who wrote what and oh. which is in this and which isn't in this. Well, as, as, as Stephen will no doubt attest to, back back in the day, just to sound like an old codger, um, there, there, there were only so many reference materials. Exactly. So you had you had Jean-Marc Lefissier's program guide. You had the the Universal Data Bank. You had mm-hmm. um, you had um, um, the Peter Hating books. Uh, maybe you had David Howe's books, whatever. But you, there was there wasn't a lot out there to use as reference material. So you ended up reading the same thing over and over and over, and it just became ingrained just became second nature oh i know that and i own those books and they're sitting behind us well i own those books thank you very much and yes they are sitting behind us i have copies too <laughs> thank you very much this is why you never get a couple on your podcast by the way Stephen. <laughs> i think it's great um but you're right um i had the same situation except it would have been the early 90s but you better believe i memorized all of those production codes but uh because there was you know nothing else to do in a misspent youth i guess but absolutely not something i would recommend people to do at the moment or uh you know given the fact as you say that it's at our fingertips these days you don't need to memorize this stuff yeah well i mean as as cat uh, talked earlier you know i talked over earlier re- reading the tardis wiki uh, entry about ark and space yep. So, I mean, you want that? Cool. you got Wikipedia. You've got I know, the right? BBC's resources. You've got fan stuff. You've got podcasts. You've got, yeah. We're so spoiled. A zillion, zillion resources that, that, you know, we couldn't even fathom of in the it's 80s so 90s. so true. So true. But anyway, to go back to, back, go back to the question in hand, there's our digression. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. Um, <laughs> to go back to the, the, the question in hand, as far as, like, the Holmes-Hinchcliffe era as a, as a whole is concerned, I always felt that I'm a little harder on it than most. Um, it's it's not this it's not the panacea that's that a lot of people claim it to be, in my opinion. I like that word panacea. Yeah. Um, is the <laughs> with with there's a, I mean there's 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 no question there's some amazing stuff in there with pyramids of Mars and seats of doom and, and, and whatnot. But, hmm. but on, you know, the whole, I've, I've never been like, uh, a Gothic horror fan. So things like brain of Morbius, I can, I can take or leave brain of Morbius. Right, despite, right. despite the, 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 the laurels it gets, um, oh man, what else? Uh, Zygons, uh, Talons is at the tail end. Yay, yeah, I remembered one. Talons is the last of it. Season fifteen, <laughs> it was Gray Williams or season fourteen rather, because Gray Williams took over in season fifteen. Um, Talons is um, <laughs> after after much reexamination by humanity in the last uh, decade or so. <laughs> Talons is a hot mess when it comes to so many aspects like mm-hmm. race, for example. Um, it's true. It's it's even that one has has gone down so massively in my in my est- uh, estimation over the years um that said jago and lightfoot hey they had a hell of a life in uh in big finish that's for sure i don't know i i i guess when i think of tom baker's run i think of that era more so than any other mm-hmm. era um just because you have the big heavy hitters you have like um like zygons and talons and Brain of Morbius and all gothic horror. It's just like every little tick Hmm. box for me. Um, Which is probably why I don't think of Ark in Space, because Ark in Space to me doesn't feel like 
one of their stories because it seems too clean ah. and too, maybe not clean, clean's not the right word, but like too well lit and too clean and too yeah. spaceshipy. Because if you, if, you, if you take it as a comparison against Revenge of the Cybermen, which used the same sets, Revenge of the Cybermen, just because of how it's it's set in the era and whatnot, it is, you know, things are locked off and, and darker and dirty and, and things like that, whereas Ark in Space is very brightly lit and, and all that. So, it I mean. kind of reminds me of, like, an Isomoff yeah, yeah. sci-fi story versus, like, a Frankenstein kind of sci-fi story. Of it just being that grungy, grungy Victorian, dark, dirty versus clean spaceship, futuristic, we don't really know what's going on, but something's going on kind of parallel. Hmm. That That's a really good point, yeah. For, for season 12, for example, I mean, Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks being in there are, are both held up as these... these 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 the cornerstones of of who greatness. My, my favorite story in season twelve was Revenge of the Cybermen. So I mean, I don't know. That's not that I. It's not that I, I. I dislike them. Genesis is vastly overrated. I mean, Ooh. there's a reason that Nation had to rewrite it. Um, and fighting words. <laughs> Genesis is so slow. Um, the the best the best explanation of Genesis of the Daleks. The best the best criticism of Genesis of the Daleks uh, is Graham Burke. Um, who who uh, just simply does not care for it in the same way that a lot of other people do, but it's just overly long and nothing happens. It's back and forth and 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 if it wasn't if it wasn't for the introduction of Davros, if it wasn't for characters like Nider, I think I think it'd be incredibly forgettable. Yeah. Especially since we've already we've had that story already a decade earlier. That's yeah uh, yeah yeah, and I think. I think one of the reasons that that the home Sinchcliffe era is kind of seen as being this big wonderful thing is because you have these big overdrawn overwrought characters that um, you know like well I guess Nider would be one of them then if Genesis hmm. is so like Nider and you Nider, have like yeah. when you have brains of Morbius and brain of Morbius and stuff like that you have these big characters that everyone remembers to the point that you don't remember how not great the plot might be or how problematic the plot might be in the case of Talents. Actually, Kat, you, make, you raise a really good point and it's one that I didn't think I picked up earlier when, when we were recording our podcast, but um, there's something amiss with the structure of a lot of Hinchcliffe and Holmes uh, stories I've noticed, which is, you know, one part out of four there will not be good. And, and the classic for me is Pyramids of Mars, where it's such a great story until you get to, you know, the, the playground puzzles on Mars. And it's just like, hmm, yeah, actually, this wasn't quite as strong as I, as I remember. But it doesn't matter because Marcus Scarman is in, is in there. And that, that sort of um, <laughs> incredible performance by Bernard Archard and, and, you know, playing off Michael Sheard, those two brothers, is like the first thing that I remember about that story and how incredible it is and then I sit down and watch it it's like oh my god this part four really is terrible you're right <laughs> um to uh, I, I love part four of Pyramids of Mars um but that said part four of Pyramids of Mars is basically a ripoff of part four of Death of the Daleks <laughs> it's it's, it's been done it's it's I, yeah. I, I think I think part of part of why it, it can it can be it can be interpreted as less than what it is, is because it's a repeat of, of what was of what happened two years prior in Death of the Daleks. I think 
I think looking at the looking at this list now that I have it, um, <laughs> all of these stories were stories that people told me I had to watch when I first started getting into Doctor Who, or when I first started getting into classic Doctor Who, and I watched them because people told me, but I didn't remember like super enjoying them. Like I watched them and I was like, yeah, that was good because I'm supposed to say that's good because yeah, those right. are the stories you're supposed to like. But then I never went back to them, not to the same extent that I did for most of like Davison stories where I can sit down and just watch Black Orchid just because it's there. I would happily do that. But some of these stories, like they almost seem like they're like a fancy dinner you have to go to. Brilliant. You don't really want to. <laughs> and everybody says you're supposed to. Yeah, no, I take that point. And in terms of Davison, I'm a massive Davison fan. Like my adolescence was hallmarked by just an adoration for that for that sort of storytelling in that that era. Um, I feel though that like you know, as we were saying earlier, Chris, because it's it, you know the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era is kind of like home turf, or at least you know where I first start with Doctor Who. That there's this affinity there. But the older that I get, the more that I can see how flawed it is. It's not to say that I don't love it. But I love it a little less than maybe I, I did when I was, you know, eight years old and thinking, what on earth is this? And having my, my imagination transported by a brand new television show that was actually like, you know, 20 years old at the time. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. Hmm. Um, like, um, I don't know, Seeds of Doom, for example. I mean, you've got, you've got some excellent elements to Seeds of Doom with Douglas Canfield directing and, um, and oh, why can't I think of um, Harrison Chase? Uh, or even um, uh, what's her name, Amelia Ducat, uh, the the painter in there. Like, there's some some amazing, memorable characters in Scorby, and but but on the whole, it's six parts. It drags. It, it's 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 not. <laughs> it takes forever to do what it needs to do, but it's still. I, I mean, one thing that was sort of done with um, um, Holmes and Hinchcliffe for, for at least a couple of times was they had the they had the, the two part and the four part because um, 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 Sundhard experiments and then uh, well sort of uh, well Arkansas based Sundhard experiments sort of but in reverse anyway but uh, Seas of Doom was like the first two episodes were their own thing in the Antarctic and then the four back in back in the UK. And and like so, they had some they had some interesting storytelling mechanisms, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I say, nostalgia is a powerful drug. I look I, I look at the list of, of things between seasons twelve and fourteen, and it's like there's some what what I consider to be uh, untouchable classics, but really they're not. Like the Deadly Assassin, awesome awesome story. There's a lot wrong with it. Yep. Uh, robots of death i will sit and uh, i could sit and watch robots of death 15 times back to back and love every minute of it yeah, it's also very flawed mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i mean nothing nothing's gonna be perfect but uh, yeah, i don't know and then you get look at things like planet of evil or or android invasion and they're just downright stinkers i like android invasion though <laughs> me too oh. <laughs> It's okay. a guilty pleasure. I can't explain it. It is just so joyous. Maybe it's the outdoor location work, which looks so beautiful. But yeah, there's something really rather pleasant about Android Invasion. And maybe it is because it's just a little bit crap, but that's why I enjoy it. Yeah, it's junk food. It's I, junk food that you're allowed to enjoy amongst all these big pompous dinners. I, lo- I love, I love the... <laughs> 
I love the concept of the recreated town and the the, the calendar that has the every date the same and the newly exactly. minted coins and there's yeah. there's some some mystery elements around that 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 I just lapped up as a kid. But on the whole, if I have to sit through Android innovation, I'm going to want to shoot myself. <laughs> maybe yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe if they had gotten Nick Courtney like they were supposed to, rather than um, replacement uh, Colonel guy. Um, oh Faraday, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe that might have sparked a little more, but but that's <laughs> that's the exit of John Levine. That's the exit of of Ian Martyr. Ian Martyr, uh, and, yeah. And they 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 both go out on such a low, and it's yeah. it's, it's a di- it's a disservice both to to Sullivan and Levine. So, uh. yeah, you would have to rewrite that if you had a second chance, wouldn't you? Because it's just as you say, they sort of wander off into the distance, and that's kind of it. There's no. Oh, yeah. no, it's such a waste. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to bring up the whole thing of why great, why Guy Crayford doesn't realize he has a second eye. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, look, I'm, at this point, I just want to throw it to Kat because Kat, you're on Verity, and Verity obviously has such an important voice, particularly in terms of a feminist um, perspective of, of, of doc, not just, you know, classic Doctor Who, but all of Doctor Who. And one of the mm-hmm. things that the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era really is noted for, I think it has like three or four female speaking parts in three years. Um, you know, there's that sort of... <laughs> I don't, I don't even know if I'm exaggerating there. I think, you know, Sarah Jane is sort of objectified or at least on a number of occasions reduced to like, you know, the screaming damsel in distress, the peril monkey sort of archetype of, of the female companion that sort of gets set in stone, you know, in later times in, in the eighties that thankfully sort of is, is, is undone, is undone rather um, with the new series. So, so, you know, from a, you know, feminism perspective there, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era are problematic to say the least, but um, you know, from, from your point of view, um, you know, Considering you know you know your involvement with Faraday and Who as well, how does that era sit with you? How do those themes and that the representation of gender there come across to you? Um, well, I mean that could be part of the reason that I don't. Sure. I don't think much of it, or I think yeah. of it enough of you know just because people mention it. Um, I always make I like to make the running joke that um, the cabbage that Tom Baker wanted for like Deadly Assassin, <laughs> it, that could have been a female. You know that could have been like a female cabbage. <laughs> Um, but no, there's, there's, there's plenty of problems with like talons and I'm going to say not necessarily hand of fear because hand of fear is in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You're right. Yeah. Um, hand of fear is pretty good. And like Sarah Jane is kind of, well, she is screaming in that one, Hmm. but she also plays like a major, major kind of tour de force in that episode. So, I don't know, I guess that era doesn't scream feminism for me, no. and it doesn't scream, like, positive female characters either. Yeah. But I think some of the stories, the f- the companions are the reason that it held up, mm-hmm. despite a less than stellar script, I guess maybe a good way to put it. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think Elizabeth Sladen does incredible things with the part that sometimes, you know, um, is maybe a little bit two-dimensional, but the stuff that she is given... Oh my goodness! Like it's it's no wonder why she's perhaps you know best remembered as as the classic the classic Doctor Who companion. I think. Yeah, I mean, well, she she was amazing just to begin with, but yeah, um, that story is kind of like when you think Sarah Jane, you kind of picture because that's the episode the story where she's got the 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 
is it like suspenders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the striped striped suspenders. The, the overalls. Yeah. Whenever you see a picture of Sarah Jane, usually that's the outfit she's wearing. Yeah. The, the, the Andy pajamas. pajamas. Yeah, the Andy pajamas. Yeah. Andy <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so uh, true. Just, just to utterly butt in, uh, just skimming seasons twelve to fourteen, I've just made a a quick little list of the female characters that I could think of from oh, the okay. respective yeah, stories. Yeah. So in Robot, there's, I can't remember her name, the, the woman who heads the scientific uh, fringe community. Uh, Winters? Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, and so that's one. Ark in Space, you've got Vira. Uh, in, Genes- in Genesis, and I can't remember the character's name, there's that, that short-haired uh, woman. Betan, yeah. Um, yep. Terror of the Zygons, you've got the nurse. Uh, Seeds of Doom, you've got um, Olivia Ducat. Hand of Fear, you've got Eldrad, sort of. And in Robots of Death, Robots of Death, you have Toos and Zelda. So by my count, there's what, like eight or nine? Out of all those stories. Out of, out of three series worth of, yeah. Yeah. It's not a great track record, is it? No, it really isn't. And I mean, hey, at least they're com- you know committing to the whole Victorian Gothic horror idea, because that's what you'd have then, too. <laughs> I'm probably forgetting one or two from Face of Evil or whatever, but, but the, the, I, yeah. Your point stands. Your, your point yeah. stands, yeah. Stephen, yeah. That there's... there's Oh, I mean, it's how 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 easy or how terrible is it to chalk it up to just you know, hey, it's the seventies. So if you look at like, uh, I mean, if you look at if you look at um, Talents of Wing Chang, for example, uh, with uh, uh, John Bennett playing uh, playing Lee Sin Chang, uh, you know, a white man in in well, blackface, effectively, the only actual. Mm-hmm. Asian actors in there are like non-speaking, basically, and they, you know, the one that t- takes the scorpion pill, and like they're, yeah, they're 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 also Rans, um, yeah, and then oh, women characters, and then uh, there's like there's <laughs> there's 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 no representation unless you happen to be a, a you know white man. It's shocking. No, this is true. And, <laughs> well, yeah, it's one of those things where I mean, it's difficult to sort of. Um, appreciate exactly why that's the case in the 1970s and I, I tend to think that even in, in even for the 1970s even with things uh, like uh, you know Love Thy Neighbour and all those other kind of you know incredibly racist and horribly sexist shows All in know, the Family uh, Robin all, yeah, exactly. Robin's Nest and all of that kind of stuff. George and Mildred. You know, these were incredibly uh, a sexist as well as racist, um, you know, television shows that were on at the same time. And yeah, you can you can definitely sort of say, well, that was the context of the time. But I also believe that Doctor Who isn't like all of those other shows. Doctor Who always aspires to be something mm-hmm. better, something else, something more. And so I feel disappointed in that regard. It doesn't look. It doesn't mean that I can't love the show, but you know, we we look back at that era and it can't just be sort of. Uh, unending adulation for, for a you know a golden era that never was. I don't think. I think we do have to be um, careful, and we do have to be honest and say, yeah, look, there's some great things about that, and we've you know we've spoken about a lot of those things. But also, here are the things that maybe you know with an adult critical faculty we look back on and we think, hmm, yeah, maybe they could have done that a little bit better after all. On the, you know, on the other side of the camera, you've got Patty Russell directing Pyramids of Mars, and yeah, that's it. No female writers, no other female directors, wow. no women producers, no no women yeah. executives, no no nothing. Yeah, it's yeah, that's a good point. It's it's an, it's perfectly okay to enjoy a story that has problems if you realize that there's problems and you don't try to apologize for yeah. those problems or make up reasons why those problems are okay. 
And if you can look at those stories and see what you absolutely love about them, and then if you end up going into television or you end up creating your own things and you can take those problems mm. and make them strengths, then yes. that's even better. You're doing more service to the story for, for doing Spot that. Spot on. Yeah. yeah. Like the, 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 the industry as a whole is run by, you know, old white guys. And uh, early, earlier in the day, um, we sat down and we watched An Adventure in Space and Time. And there's there's a lo oh, yeah. lovely little scene between Verdi Lambert and and Waris Hussein just talking about you know toppling the establishment as it were and and making <laughs> making their mark as a a Jewish female producer and a, a gay Indian director. And mm, that's, that's such a lovely scene, isn't it? Oh, it really I love is it. it's awesome. And and it's 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 I have no idea if that conversation ever took place because obviously it's a dramatization, but that's that's an element that. That if it wasn't there would do such a disservice to the characters as presented by Mark Gatiss and that. So I mean, I, I love the fact it's there. Yeah. It could have been an unspoken conversation. Yeah, very possibly. But also, it, it, the very fact of it is sort of um, evidence that within the DNA of the show, right from the start, there is this sort of progressive, liberal, um, you know, even rebellious agenda to the show. And it, sometimes, you know, we kind of lose sight of that, or you know, the show loses sight of that. But it shouldn't. We shouldn't. Like that's always something that's been there, and, and is a great strength of the show. It's what differentiates it from everything else that's on television at the time. Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> Very well said. Oh yeah, like like I said earlier, I think uh, like from from a um, when I was when I was eight, nine, ten, whatever years old, watching watching this stuff as a as a kid, and just just. Just eating it up because hey, you've got you know monsters and spaceships and lasers and all that kind of stuff, and you yeah. know as as as, yeah. as as a child just absorbing entertainment, it's all, it's all wonderful stuff. Um, but as as I've gotten older, I don't know. Like uh, a few a few years ago at, at the Gallifrey One convention, um, oh, 2013, 14, I can't remember when it was. Um, Ready for Scar? We we did a live show and uh got philip hinchcliffe as one of the guests and when 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 we were told we're oh, getting wow. hinchcliffe as one of the guests like we just our our jaws basically just hit the floor like like how 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 <laughs> how, how how dare we be within 10 feet of this man <laughs> and and it was it was you know he's he's such an such an awesome amazing person and and he he did some great work in Doctor Who. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if nothing else, if nothing else, I suppose it should be mentioned and remembered that when he when he started as producer for Doctor Who, he was he was his late twenties, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he was. he was he was still a fairly young person, you know, mm -hmm. uh, old enough to be established, of course, but a fairly young person who was still finding his way in a lot of in a lot of facets and. And uh, there were, there, yeah. So his era had some missteps, but uh, but it, it, uh, I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm overly negative on the whole thing because there there's there's there there's a lot of good stuff in there as well. Yeah, it is yeah. it is big for a reason. There is a reason that so many people when they come when they come to Doctor Who and they have friends that are also in the fandom, they come to them and say, you know, you have to see um, the Ark in Space. <laughs> you have to see Genesis of the Daleks. You have to see this. Mm. You have to see this. There is a reason the seeds behind of the that. Of Mars. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that they're the ones that stick out over this huge canon of, of TV. Um, it's just important to never, you know, kind of embiggen them any more than, than they really need <laughs> to be because they are just pieces of one big TV show. 
Yeah, and part of that rich tapestry, I guess, which I, I think is a great strength of the show, is that we can do this for three years and then go off and do, you know, space disco and for three years, um, <laughs> and, and something else entirely after that. I think you know the, the show is robust enough as a format to handle those changes, and in fact needs it. And unless the year is twenty eighteen, and people are revolting against Doctor Who series eleven for for the fact that it's two PC and whatnot, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> Which I, yeah, that's, that's all, that's all. You just poured the kettle of fish all over the floor and then just walked away. <laughs> I, I kicked it over because all that, all that is just, just nonsense. Uh, it is. I can nonsense. only imagine that they've never gone back and watched, you know, 1963's The Daleks or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we have it. Uh, a review of not just Ark in Space, but also the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, as uh, told to us by uh, Kat from Verity and Chris from Radio Free Scaro. Thank you both so very, very much for, for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for having us, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and Kat and Chris, where can we find you both? Um, you can find Verity Podcast at uh, veritypodcast.com. And radiofreescaro.com for Radio Free Scaro. Thank you very, very much. So, Sweet Dorks, on the line with me at the moment is Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who, The Writer's Room, and now Outer Limits, The Writer's Room. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we had you on the Inferno episode and we had to have you back. And I know you've got some strong views and ideas around the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, so I wanted to get uh, your views on that and on our podcast as well. So thank you very much. Um, we're doing the Ark in Space this month, and in a slightly different format for Series 3 of, of New to Who, what we're trying to do is to look at stories that are representative of uh, larger eras as a whole. So the Ark in Space is the one that we've chosen. It's the first Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes story, and it uh, is very much, I guess, a template of what's to come over the next three years for good and for ill. But maybe let's start with the Ark in Space and, and, and let me know what you think about that. And hmm, maybe from there we can go into the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era as a whole. Sure. So Ark in Space is, you know, I, 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 won't, I won't pick nits with your, your methodology, but Ark in Space is an interesting choice if you want to use it to talk about Hinchcliffe and Holmes because it's not a Hinchcliffe and Holmes story. <laughs> I mean, it was cre- produced by uh, Hinchcliffe and... Ended up being written mm-hmm. by Holmes, though, but it was commissioned by the previous team. Um, and John Lucarati was writing whatever it was he was writing exactly that was completely bonkers <laughs> and ended up not being used at all. And well, I mean, he, I, I honestly, I like, I've read about it and it just like, it's so weird sounding. And he was still giving individual episodes yeah. titles yeah. and things. Um, and so, you know, Holmes has to come in and sort of very quickly. Uh, do a massive, essentially page one mm-hmm. rewrite on on Art and Space. Um, and that actually is one thing that sort of carries over. There's a lot of Robert Holmes writing in the Holmes-Hinchcliffe era, which is not necessarily the same in other eras, but that's a separate point. But it's Art and Space is fundamentally a very optimistic story about the future of humanity. It's, um, it's a story in the vein of other classic Who stories about like the demons and so forth. It's about the power of love and the power of optimism and mm. hope. Um, you know, you have the fourth doctor's key defining moment from that story and arguably his entire tenure, the, you know, the indomitable mm. speech. Um, and that sort of, it makes it a very appealing story, I think, 
for especially people who are going back to the classic series who know New Who because it feels of a piece. It has the sort of scary horror elements. It has, you know, the the human transformation. It has the weird space creatures. But fundamentally, it's about the fact that even though this man becomes a giant space wasp, he still loves his wife. Hmm. And that love for the wife saves not only her and the doctor and everyone else, but it saves the human race. Yeah. Like, that's such a new hooey sort of feeling thing. And to see it in this very beginning of this uh, fourth doctor, uh, Hinchcliffe Holmes era, is is quite interesting. And I think it would have been interesting to see a Hinchcliffe and Holmes era that continued in this vein. Mm. Um, I honestly think I would have liked it much more <laughs> if they had continued in this vein. Um, but it, it, it is really quite interesting. It's almost as if they feel like, well, we did this, now we don't have to do this again. Um, which is, yeah. But it's, I, I love Work in Space. I think it's fantastic. I think, I think, uh, Sarah's great. I think Harry's wonderful. I think they're very smart in keeping the supporting cast very small so you can actually care about sure. the characters and feel like you maybe understand them. Um, has lots of, Nice combinations, very Holmesian sort of combinations of very dark comedy, along with sort of moments of sheer goofiness um, and just idiosyncras- uh, idiosyncrasy and eccentrism, um, but with also this mixture of horror thrown in. It's really, it's a really nicely done little piece, um, but it definitely feels like a sort of, I don't know, it feels. It feels almost like a one-off for their era because they never really did anything like Arkham's Race again. I don't think. By virtue of the the uh, the optimism, you mean? I think the optimism. I also think the sort of um, like you look at episode one, which yeah. you know is famous for Doctor Who fans for only featuring the main characters, sure. um, the, the the starring characters. That's not something that you know. That's clearly something done by. By accident or because the script was coming in late and they didn't know, what you know, whatever reason it was. Hmm. It feels, all these things make it feel very much like a one-off. But I think, yeah, the optimism is fundamentally the thing that goes away. Hmm. Um, you also have a strong female character in Vira, which is not something you actually get a lot of in the Hinchcliffe Holmes era. It's very uncommon, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's super common later on in the Graham Williams era, and mm-hmm. it had been common in other eras and would be common again. But here, to have essentially the the main guest lead, along with Noah, um, to have it be a woman and to have it be a sort of interesting female character is not something you see again. So there's lots of elements that feel um, more like maybe Holmes was sort of writing still in the vein of what he'd done uh, under Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, maybe, bringing in some of that before he and Hinchcliffe had really solidified this, what are we doing, were we making the classic horror stories? And we're putting those in Doctor Who. I'm, I'm so glad I've spoken to you about this because I genuinely hadn't thought of that before as a sort of distinguishing feature uh, around Ark in Space uh, as opposed to the rest of the, the era. Um, I guess my focus was very much on the, the tropes and the conventions that are established and introduced uh, that are then sort of extended into the, the following three seasons. Um, and maybe speaking of which, let, if you've got praise for, for Ark in Space, I'm not sure what's going to follow here in terms of the uh, the overall Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. I think I... My... my I'm trying to find the exact right word because I don't want to be too strong about no, it. That's sure. My disinclination to praise Hinchcliffe and Holmes... Mm-hmm. 
uh, comes from a variety of sources. One is I just really don't, the stories don't resonate with me very much. Um, okay, yeah. They, they, they just don't. Um, the I don't mind the fact that there many, many of them are sort of hammer horror retreads. I, that, that doesn't bother me in the least. Or classic sci-fi films or whatever. Um, but I think a lot of it is that um, it is they're they're darkly nihilistic at times like mm. in a way that is kind of distressing for me for doctor who to see just consistently how many of the supporting characters even noble ones end up dying sometimes pointlessly or needlessly um like the sort of holmes hinchcliffe template because it is sort of taken from horror i think more than it is from sci-fi or action adventure means that guest characters are to some extent cannon fodder (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes in a way that's genuinely uh tragic or upsetting like in pyramids of mars oh yeah Um, the scarmans yeah um and sometimes just feels like you're doing it for shock value which is a weird thing for who not a weird thing but it's it's not a thing i necessarily always respond to well like again in pyramids of mars where you have and i forget his name the sort of Egyptian servant of Sutek who gets killed at the end of uh, episode one. Ibrahim? Because. Yeah. Ibrahim, yes. Ibrahim. Who gets killed because. Um, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, literally, he's literally there to die. Or the gameskeeper who's there to die. Mm. Like all these, you know, no one survives that story who's not the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Yeah. Like everyone else you meet has to die. Um, and that's sort of the vibe you get um, through a lot of the period. It's that... Um, there aren't many good people you meet. <laughs> it's a lot of bad people. Um, and there is a sort of fixation on darkness and violence and, and horror. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, but it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate that much with me. Um, and then there are stories in the era that people really, really love that I actually do find kind of distasteful. Like, um, and I always get, I can never remember which one it is, like Seeds of Doom. Now you're yes. F- you're f- yes, that is the right one, and you are famous yes. for not liking this. And I'm I'm I don't know if I'm famous for anything. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know what I mean. I think you're the only person mm. that I know of who um you know doesn't absolutely adore that 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 show. I know Paul Cornell has said that you know for him that is as close to perfect Doctor Who as you can get, even though it's atypical in many ways. Yeah, and I think I think it's that that atypicality is not something necessarily that I I have an aversion to. I mm-hmm. I like a lot of the sort of atypical stories like Mind Robber, or Kinda, or what yeah, have you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the way it's atypical is by casting the Doctor as a sort of gun wielding action hero. Um, and and the moment that people love is actually in in Seeds of Doom is actually one of the things that I really dislike. He crashes through the skylight, and and you know Harrison Chase says, "What do you do for an encore, Doctor?" And the Doctor says, "I, I win. win. Yes, <laughs> I win." And that it's I, it, it's like, is this a game, Doctor? That you win, or is this you know how are you thinking about this whole encounter with this crazy plant obsessed billionaire and you know Earth eating plants and Sarah Jane being thrown into a grinder? Like everything about it just feels like he suddenly become a uh, you know a a one liner spouting action hero in a way that I just it doesn't sit well with my 
my preferred version of Doctor Who. I, you know, I'm very careful about saying it's not Doctor Who. Obviously, it is Doctor Who, but it's just not a version I respond to. Yeah, yeah. At all. There, I mean, there's plenty of great stuff. Like, you know, um, you know, you could lose everything, including your pension. You know, I always <laughs> have my toothbrush with me. Like, there's plenty of really funny lines and stuff. But fundamentally, it's it it just it's playing with the format and pushing it into this sort of area that I don't like. Um, and I think that's something that they do a lot. And sometimes it works for me. Deadly Assassin, I really quite enjoy. Mm-hmm. But Deadly Assassin is also, again, a story where it feels like they've decided not to be Doctor Who for a few weeks and to do something else. Um, and I think it kind of works because it's such an experimental feel. Like, no companion has the weird voiceover. Yeah. It's set entirely on Gallifrey. It feels like a one-off. Whereas the other times those things happen, it feels more like they're just pushing the show in a direction that I'm not crazy about. Um, when we were talking about doing this, I said my sort of opening thesis was Mary Whitehouse was right, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, meant to be provocative. But I think she I think she was right in that it they push the show in a more violent, um, angry, nihilistic direction. Uh, to try to bring in these sort of teen viewers and these more grown-up yes, college student yeah. viewers that Hinchcliffe says he wanted to attract. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if it is at the expense of not necessarily the children watching. I think the children watching will always watch because children like Doctor Who and that's fine. But at the sort of spirit of what the show can and maybe should be. Hmm. Um, and I think it's not a surprise that the show bounced back very strongly after Hinchcliffe and Holmes left and sort of went more sort of fun, goofy space stuff, which is not always great either. And <laughs> the other era that has heavy Holmes input um, is the sort of Eric Sayward period, where Sayward's trying to recreate that vibe to some extent. Yeah, that is and true. It's, and it's it's just really dark and violent and nihilistic because it's not leavened by the same kind of humor. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It uh, Yeah, it's very few of the stories in their period really resonate with me um and and it's for me it's kind of perplexing that it's quite so popular (laughs) (laughs) well i I think um and this is a point that we keep raising um you know dan and cole and i uh, when we were talking about the ark in space is that this is amongst the you know first stories of doctor who we ever saw because just by virtue of the fact that in the late 80s early 90s uh, the ABC here uh, in Australia would strip the, um, uh, particularly the Hinchcliffe mm-hmm. and Holmes era. So, you know, this mm-hmm. was this was something that was familiar to us. And one of the real sort of fascinating points uh, that sort of made me think or reevaluate the way that I think about Doctor Who as a whole um, is that you, you know you said that you didn't grow up with it. You came to it as an adult, mm-hmm. and so you can look at things like you know series five, uh, season five rather, the monster season. You can look at season eight. You can look at you know the Hinchcliffe at Home era in a way that non-fans, or or rather you know fans who have sort of been entrenched in it since they were you know five years of age, can't. And I think that's almost a superpower because there's I I know that I suffer from an industrial blindness when it comes to this. I love the Ark in Space. I do love the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era because it feels like I'm eight years old and I'm reading Target novelizations in the school library and then rushing home at 5.30 to watch it on the ABC. And I can't remove myself from those memories, even though as an adult, 
there's an increasingly sort of critical faculty that allows me to have a look at you know certain aspects and say you know what Eric's right about that or you know look at it for myself and say well they probably did go too far here and Mary Whitehouse was right at the end of part three of the deadly assassin to to write in and, yeah, and say what yeah. she said she was she was stone cold right about that that's that's I, I won't say irresponsible television making, but it is deeply problematic to me that a show that was at least largely aimed at young children had such a wolf. That's rough. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard to argue with that um, with the sort of adult uh, rational sort of mind, I think. Um, and it's always interesting to hear that, um, you know, views like yours because you didn't grow up with it and... and uh, you know, you have got that sort of dispassionate view of things, whereas I'm always going to be that eight-year-old kid when it comes to stories like Brain of Morbius. Yeah, and the thing is that your experience in Australia is very similar to many fans' experience in America and Canada, where it was, this was the era sort of Doctor Who from 75 to, let's say, you know, 80 or so was uh-huh. sort of what was constantly on the loop being played. Yeah, right. Um, and, and so these are the stories that sort of everyone kind of knew if they watched Doctor Who as a child. And even even Americans who don't know Doctor Who, they kind of recognize the scar or now yeah. everyone knows. But they kind of recognize the guy with the scarf was sort of because it was on, on PBS all the time. Yeah. To the point where he makes it into The Simpsons, right? Yeah, it makes it into Simpsons multiple times mm. and is referenced, you know, in all sorts of sort of geek and nerd culture pops up here and there. But even in more mainstream things. Um but the the idea that um, so many people, their formative experience with Doctor Who is this period. Mm. Um, and yet they, um, and so like everything they view about Doctor Who after comes from this, or at least is held somehow up to this. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'll be really curious to know if in 20, 30, 40 years, you know, <laughs> when the 100th anniversary special airs, um, <laughs> Will will people look at, uh, you know, the the Matt Smith era or the Peter Capaldi era or the Jodie Whittaker era mm. and think of those times as like what Doctor Who should be? Yeah, yeah. And the sort of classic stories that we now hold sort of somehow in, as the ideal versions of Doctor Who are sort of falling away. I don't know. It's, you know, it's impossible to tell. Mm. Um, I do think it is true that if you'd asked fans 20 years ago about some of the lesser Hinchcliffe and Home stories, they would have praised them much more highly than they do now. Hmm. I think something like Planet of Evil now, I mean, it's fine. I just find it a bit dull. It's it's a bit dull. This People are like, oh, the jungle sets. Yes, the jungle sets look great. Hinchcliffe way overspent it and completely ruined the show's budget <laughs> repeatedly. And and that's, that, that is irresponsible television making, but from a different perspective. <laughs> um, and, and it's like, yeah, I can make something look nice too if I spend way more than I'm supposed to. Mm. Like, that's not a skill. <laughs> like, literally, the skill is doing it while doing it on the cheap. He didn't have that skill. And I think that's part of the reason why he did leave when he did. I think they were like, you can't keep doing this because you can't stay within your budget, dude. Mm. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention we touched on with Vira is just female characters. Just, oof. It's not a great time for them. Yeah. Um, Sarah under Terrence Sticks and, and Barry Lutz is, you know, you could say she's a bit of a character, a character of um, sort of a stroppy feminist journalist or something. Um, but at least she feels somehow real and she mm-hmm. feels and she feels uh, in control of her own destiny. She feels control of her own self and her own identity. Um, 
by the time she leaves in Hand of Fear, she literally is just sort of generic companion girl. And Liz Slayton plays it very well. Yeah. But she's like every element of who she was has sort of been wiped away. And she's become this much more sort of bland uh, Dr. Save Me sort. Um, and and then they bring in Leela, <laughs> which I mean, yeah, yeah, she throws a knife and she kicks ass. That is not inherently feminist, I would say. Like, that's a thing that often male writers think, oh, strong female character means that it's a woman who is physically strong and kicks ass. No. It's like they saw Buffy and got the wrong idea, although obviously Lita's way before Buffy. Because <laughs> Lita's distinctly modeled on Eliza Doolittle. Exactly. Who is a woman who needs to be taught how to be a proper human being yes. by the wise old man with her. Yeah. And the fact that she's constantly being child chided like a child by the doctor is not great mm. <laughs> it's not it's not great bob and uh i um you know it would have been i i don't know what they how they would have dealt with her storyline eventually it is interesting that she becomes much more um human feeling under graham williams where she's making jokes and and things like that but under the under with her creators she feels i don't know like this like this noble savage yeah stereotype which is also problematic to indigenous peoples yeah like it's just bad all over the place in some ways <laughs> and you, you're right it's definitely a storyline that isn't taken up in in season 15 going onwards with Leela. um and maybe that's for for the best um okay well eric it's it's been a pleasure thank you so much i really appreciate <laughs> no i don't I, want to come and rain on the parade our no, is great no no i i, I think <laughs> this is sort of like a um a, a, a common refrain, I guess, for, from many commentators, and it's great to sort of get a, a polyphony of views and, and, and voices around this, but a, a lot seem to be suggesting what you're suggesting is that there's some wonderful high points within not just Arkin Space, but also the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, but that it's not the be-all and end-all, and uh, it's definitely... I don't know, uh, um, you know, a three years of television that definitely has, it prob- has its problems that, as you rightly say, 20 years ago, um, those sort of questions and, and the opening up of those texts wouldn't have been even allowed by fandom. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I, I always appreciate hearing your, your views. So uh, thanks for joining us on You To Who. Well, thank you for having me on, Stephen. Uh, and Eric, if our sweet dogs wanted to hear more of you, where can they, uh, where can they find you? Uh, so, uh, if you want to just follow me on Twitter, it's at SJC Austinite, A-U-S-T-E-N-I-T-E. Or you can listen to my podcasts. Uh, there is The Writer's Room, The Outer Limits. We covered all of the classic Doctor Who, going uh, writer by writer, talking about the themes and the stories they wrote. And now we've done, now we're moved on to another classic of sort of serialized, or not serialized, uh, I should say, anthology uh, genre writing, which is The Outer Limits. And we're in the middle of our, you know, first year or so of that. And that's going very well, which I host with Kyle Anderson of The Nerdist. Um, I also just started, because I didn't have one for a brief few months, another Doctor Who podcast uh, called The Real McCoy, where uh, Adam, my friend Adam and I talk about uh, the greatest, quote-unquote, greatest era of... (laughs) Classic Doctor Who, the Sylvester McCoy years. I am very fond of the Sylvester McCoy years, but we're going to talk about not only TV, but also novels, audios, all sorts of good stuff. That sounds wonderful. So Real McCoy and The Writer's Room is where you can find me. 
Yeah, definitely. Sweet dogs, get on it. They're both incredible podcasts. And if you haven't heard any of the uh, Writer's Room yet, I envy you. It is an incredibly uh, erudite and studied uh, history, I guess, of each of the writers that wrote, wrote for Classic Doctor Who. So get on it. Thank you very much again, Eric. Thank you. Okay, so sweet dogs, we have on the line at the moment uh, Dave Kitchen from the Doctor Who Show. Dave, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, hello, Steve. Absolute pleasure to be here with you. It's good to chat again, um, particularly about one of um, my favourites from the Hinchcliffe and uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, rather uh, the Ark in Space, but also to sort of see how that um, is a template almost, or or a sort of a blueprint for what will come later in the the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era, which is seasons 12 through to 14. So maybe if we start with the Ark in Space, general thoughts? I think it is phenomenally good. Hmm. And and it's good in in so many ways. As just a piece of television, it's exceptionally good. As a Doctor Who story, generally, it is very engaging, really good. But as a piece of Doctor Who that sets up, as you were saying there, that templates an era to come. Mm. I don't think we get another story this successful at doing that technical thing until we get to Rose. Oh, wow. That's a good call. Do you want to unpack that a bit more? I don't think we've heard that before. So fundamentally, you look at the Tom Baker era, and we're eased into that era after, at the time, a record five years of John Pertwee, which was very... Like, I, I love the John Pertwee era, but it was very safe. You knew what you were getting each week. People use the term, you know, the family, all that stuff. Yes, thing. exactly. And, and the production team, partly by design and partly just by accident because of the way that the changeover happened, eases us then into the change to Tom Baker with Robot, where you've got a very Pertwee-esque story in which you've got a very different Doctor, familiar actors and characters all around, Benton, Lethbridge-Stewart, etc. And so mm. you get to sort of get this idea of a very different Doctor in Tom Baker in a safe way. But then you get to the arc in space and suddenly it's, no, now you've got used to the Doctor, let's get used to where this show is going. And the tonal shift is is, is marked yeah. and, and exciting and engaging for doing that. But it does say to you, this is what Doctor Who is going to be like for the foreseeable future. And it turns out to be three years. And it does it really, really well. And, and I think, as I said, it's unusual to get an era that's so definitely has one story that just stamps down what this show is now going to be from here on. No excuses, no equivocations. It's it's this. This is the tone. This is the level of humour. This is the level of uh, scariness. This is the mm-hmm. level, you know, this is the level we're pitching it at, that the famous Robert Holmes, you know, intelligent 12-year-old pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, I think I think it is very successful, both at being a good story and at setting up the era. And and let me say, every time I go to watch The Ark in Space, I'll sit down, usually over dinner, and say, right, I'm having dinner. I've got half an hour just to, to breathe and relax. I'll put on an episode of The Ark in Space, and every single time, an hour and a half later, I've watched the whole story by accident. <laughs> by, by accident, in inverted commas. <laughs> it is that good, yes. though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really is just so good. And and it's a story that has it's a story that I have enjoyed in different ways across my life. I can remember being you know a young boy and watching this on the ABC on many repeats. Same. And 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 enjoying it because it 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 conjured up and evoked that sci-fi, you know, gleaming metal, flashing lights, space station, mm-hmm. alien menace, mm-hmm. doctor and companion. It did all that, that that as a kid you like. Then as an adult as you get to appreciate more what's going on, the human story, particularly with Noah and Vira, 
and all the depth underneath it and and appreciate in some ways more what Tommy's doing, what Ian Marta's doing, and to a certain extent Liz Sladen, although this isn't her best story. There are layers in this that, you know, as I say, I appreciate it in different ways as I get older, but always good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that, definitely. Yeah, and you got me thinking there in terms of just as a one-off story. I think, you know, there are market changes when it comes to particular seasons or series of Doctor Who, but you're right that, you know, the, the Davison era doesn't kick off with, with Castro Valva. It sort of, you know, builds up over the course of season 19 until you sort of get to the end of part four of Earthshock. I'm not yes. going to count time flight <laughs> for the purposes <laughs> of. Um, and Sylvester's likewise, you know, it's probably not even until Remembrance into season, his second series uh, or season that, you know, we start to understand what the McCoy Doctor's about. Um, so that's a really good call. I, I hadn't thought of that. That we This is like a, a tight 90 minutes of television that redefines an entire sort of uh, direction that the show is going in rather than, you know, it being sort of done over a, a period of, you know, three, four, five, six stories, which I think tends to happen with the other Doctors. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And as I say, it does it whilst being utterly gripping. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so a good start then for Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Um, Holmes obviously having rewritten all of this and Hinchcliffe sort of getting his teeth into the role after Robot was really just a, a handover um, relic from, from, the, from the previous Barry Letts and Terence Dix era. Yes. Um, how do you think it sort of works as a way in which the, you know, the three seasons that follow um, that come after this um, are, you know, archetypically when we think about Hinchcliffe and Holmes about that, that era, like what is it that comes out of this story that sort of echoes through the rest of the, the era? I think that what comes out of it is a greater intelligence and depth in the writing, which is not to diminish what people like Terence Dix and, 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 and the writers that wrote for him before were doing. They're very good writers. Sure. and you know, I mean, uh, Malcolm Hulk, phenomenally good writer, etc. But mm. there is a consistent level of intelligence in the way that these stories are written and put together. There is a consistent level of world building, and that's a yeah. very Robert Holmes sort of trait. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in, in the arc in space, we sort of know, you know what's happened on Earth. We know the way Earth works now through the different characters, just quick lines. Uh, you know, they, they talk about the you know the, there wasn't much joke in the days leading up to what happened and uh, yeah. their, their their quest for the future and just you know just just a quick mention of the 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 was it the high president or what or whatever the high minister yes yeah yeah the high minister yes that gives gives Liz Slaven the pep talk um, <laughs> and also a slight decrease in the safety net that you get as a viewer and that's a very big distinction i think particularly from the pertwee era you always felt as though you were safe with pertwee even in the most mm. dangerous story there was always this sense that you know uncle perts would keep you safe and look after you and the brigadier was always there to get there just in the nick of time and joe grant was always you know so reassuring yeah and then you get to the hinchcliffe era and and arc in space sets this up where things are just a little bit more dangerous things are just a little bit more more risky things are a little bit more uncertain. And that, I think, carries through the Hinchcliffe-Holmes era in, in a very deliberate way. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, what you mentioned before, the aimed at the intelligent 12-year-old, so, it, um, you, know, you know, maybe that sort of involves 
appealing to a sort of darker sense of of uh not, well not just humor but also you know storytelling as well right i mean we can af- i don't know whether they sometimes went overboard and my my impression is that on occasions that they did but you know in sort of scaring the little buggers i think is is how hinchcliffe has, was was once quoted as sort of yeah you know sort of <laughs> what his reason for making the show was oh absolutely and it's interesting though that hinchcliffe still had a line because there are three occasions uh one of them forced on him and two of them of his own volition and his own choice where he did cut stuff that was recorded because he did think it crossed his own personal line. Yeah. One of them famously, of course, is in the Ark in Space. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the the, the, um, the point at which we see the a transformation of um, of Noah, is it? That's right, where, where we first sort of see Noah with the, the more than just the, the glove, but the sort of the half-body um, Wirren form of him. And there's that hard cut that we see in the televised version where they've cut out him asking Vira to kill him. Yeah, yeah. And that's Hinchcliffe cutting it out. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Okay. Well, what about the other sort of totemic stories that come out of that of that Holmes and Hinchcliffe era? Like, when we think about it, and, you know, you and I are of a similar vintage. We grew up watching the ABC repeats in the, uh, would have been the 80s and then the early 90s as well. Are, are there any that stand out largely for those reasons, you know, the way in which the, the tone and the direction are established? Oh, Pyramids of Mars... Seeds of Doom, yeah. Deadly Assassin, Talons of Wing Chiang. Like I could, I could, I could name half his year. Genesis of the Daleks to a reasonable extent. I, I think they're all incredibly memorable and of that tone. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about a few that sort of don't always land. Uh, for me, <laughs> Planet of Evil isn't particularly interesting. I've, I kind of fall asleep through it. Uh, and the Android Invasion, I know, sort of gets a lot of flack, but I tend to love it. I mean. I look at those objectively and I can understand that they don't hit the heights of the others that you've just mentioned, but they're not bad television in and of themselves, right? Well, well, this is my my view of the Hinchcliffe Holmes era in general. The high points in the era, there are many. Um, are they necessarily higher than the high points in other eras? I, I wouldn't say necessarily so. I think mm. the best in, you know, Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee, McCoy, etc., Davison, you know, th- there are equally great greats out there. Yeah. But, but, my th- the thing that I think sets the Hinchcliffe Holmes era apart is that their weakest stories are still very good. Yeah. And all those other eras I've mentioned have got some pretty... Like, they've all got some turkeys in there somewhere. <laughs> some of them are turkeys we can love and appreciate as fans, but, but they are turkeys. <laughs> I, I genuinely couldn't put my hand up and say there's a turkey in the Hinchcliffe era. I, I agree with you. I think Planet of Evil is a little bit weaker it doesn't quite work out but it's still visually impressive it's still engaging oh there's still stuff going on yeah. um android invasion i'm with you i i love it and I, I you know i've even i've even done the uh the uh tribute visit to the, the village <laughs> where it was filmed classic yeah uh east, east east hagborn i think it's called but but yeah like e- even at its weakest i think that there is the lows are far higher than they are elsewhere. And, and that's the thing that I think sets this era apart. The minimum standard is the best you'll see in any era of Doctor Who, classic, modern, whatever. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, I'm with you in many regards there. I think, you know, Hinchcliffe and Holmes do set a very high bar. It's a very consistent sort of level that we see. It, it's one step up from what we see with the, the Let's and, and Dex era, which is not a slight against them, because to be honest, that's, you know, uh, an era that is now uh, at that point in time, you know, three, four, five years in the past. And of course, television needs to and does progress, you know, in that time. Um, so I, I, I do agree. I mean, in terms of in terms of arc, 
really strong story sets up the you know what is to come we've talked about the the era as a whole but i want to ask one last question what's its legacy when we talk about hinchcliffe and holmes as a way in which it sort of colors the way that we view doctor who and maybe even the way that doctor who is made today like what are what's the shadows that are cast by these two giants i think first of all it would be remiss not to say that for many fans of our generation and particularly older it does stand up as a benchmark against which no other doctor who will necessarily um be perceived to equal and and it's always going to be that that um that gandara that people are questing to get to and and never find they can actually quite get to (laughs) because of the nostalgia factor and because of what it was as i say i think that heights equal to the hinchcliffe era are reached many times again in in the 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 show for the next 30 years but but it does leave this legacy of of this greatness that can never quite be equaled again and that's that's something against which i mean jnt made the comment you know you're looking at this through rose tinted glasses to fans and that was his frustration and always being told look you know you did well jnt but it's not the hinchcliffe era (laughs) I can imagine that would have galled him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and and so it should because I think at his best, JNT was as good. Um, I think his lowers were lower, but mm. his 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 heights were equal. Yeah, to them. yeah. I, I think I think that it does have a legacy in terms of that that whole attitude of, in inverted commas, hiding behind the sofa, watching Doctor Who through hmm. gaps in your fingers. Hmm. I think is really born from this era where they were not afraid to push the boat out there. They were not afraid to make it look good and spend the money they had from the colour licences flowing in at that stage. The inverse of that, of course, is that uh, when the money ran out, uh. and it did run out at the end of Hinchcliffe's era because <laughs> he spent a lot of it in his last era and that was when the, the extra money wasn't coming in, mm. uh, you, know, you know, it was always very hard to compete with that. But, but the real legacy, I think, has got to be Doctor Who's reputation for wonderful characters. Hmm. And I look at my favourite eras beforehand, and I, I love, as you know, Steve, I love the 60s, I love the Pearl era. Yeah. They're not always known for their characters, though. There are good ones in there, but not always. Consistently in Hinchcliffe and Holmes, you think of their stories, and you think of right from the start, Hilda Winters. Yeah. Then you've got Noah and Vira. You've got um, Kellerman. You've got Mr. Chase and Scorby. <laughs> uh, you've got Marin and Ohika. Uh, you know, consistently good characters all the way through. Um, the entire cast of Robots of Death, a phenomenally oh, yeah. good story we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah. You know, the entire cast of that are memorable characters. And I think that's probably its biggest legacy. Um, male, female, human, alien, whatever. You know, you know Sutek. Um, hmm. Magnus Greel. Um, you know, really good character yeah no i think that's valid absolutely and davros and nida to throw it in there as well um oh yeah absolutely <laughs> dave thank you very much this has been great it's, it's it's nice to hear someone who is positive about the era um and you know also acknowledges that well it has you know great heights but you know there are other eras as well that have similarly um you know equal um stories that that match with those those greats that come from the hinchcliffe and home era as well i think that's that's a valid point to say as well yeah, I mean, there never was a golden age thing, but <laughs> this was pretty good. Yeah, you had to get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. That's great. Thanks again, Dave. Really appreciate it. And uh, if our sweet dogs wanted to find more of you, where can we, where can we track you down? 
So I co-host the Doctor Who Show podcast with my colleague Rob. Mm -hmm. So you can just search the usual places for the Doctor Who Show. Outside of Doctor Who, I also co-host Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, and we're halfway through season two of that, going through the episodes. And in the past, I was also part of a group that went through every episode of The Goodies in the Goodies Pirate podcast. And and all the episodes of that are online on iTunes as well. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you very much, Dave. Much appreciated. My pleasure.